thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this Bible study. We continue our journey through the book of Genesis, and we are right now in chapter 30. Before I begin this chapter, I wanted to ask you, how many of you have seen the movie Avatar? Raise your hand. Um, for those of you who have not seen the movie, it's, um, it's really about a, another world. Um, humans discovered this other planet where there's uh, natives who are giant and blue and live there. And it's an interaction between the humans and the natives. The movie can be summed up this way. Uh, technology is bad. Let's go hug a tree. Um, that's essentially the whole gist of the whole story in the movie. But that's not what I'm bringing this up for. I'm just reading on the news today that uh, uh, someone posted a, um, in um, a blog about... Um, the yearning for that world that was described in the movie, that world that we know doesn't exist. And within a couple of hours, there were hundreds of postings of people who are going through depression and even some having contemplating suicide because that world does not exist. So let me recap what I'm talking about because it does sound surreal. In fact, it sounds even more strange than the movie itself. There are people who've seen the movie and who are now going through depression or having depressive tendencies and even suicidal thoughts because that world, that imaginary world that was created in the movie, does not exist. What does that suggest? What does that suggest? It does suggest, well, it seems to me at least, that... In the hearts of men, there is a yearning, a very deep-seated yearning for beauty, for freedom, for a sense of belonging, for a sense of togetherness, and for a sense of being. The movie depicts this tribe which is living within nature and is in harmony with nature, and it is a, uh, a movie in which you have uh, floating mountains and you can sit on some of those giant beasts and you fly and you experience, in a sense, a great um, impression of um, freedom and of peace. That's what's being conveyed, that the natives who are in contact or connection with, 
with nature live a much more fulfilled lives than those amongst us who are actually connected to our computers. Now, I don't think any one of us here, well, except maybe gamers, would, would, uh, uh, would say otherwise. We all know that a walk in nature, um, enjoyment of a park, going up to the mountains is very good for our souls. It is something actually that the church uh, recommends we do on a frequent basis. Um, there was a second um, study uh, that was uh, shown on this website that I, you've heard me recommend a couple of times called TED, TED.com, TED.com. It's a website where folks who are fairly smart in different disciplines, whether it's biology, whether it is uh, sociology, whether it's psychology, uh, neurology, or um, um, various scientific fields, present their findings within 15 minutes. And usually they're very uh, interesting and challenging presentations. Fairly well done. Beats reading the news. And in it, there was one study done about longevity. There was a team of researchers who have done a study on longevity. What they've done is instead of looking at um, sort of emotion-driven thoughts, they went for the facts. So they've uh, discovered or at least um, identified three different communities where the number of centenarians, people who live to be 100 years or more, is far greater than the average. So according to this research, the average is about 5%, and in their cases, it goes up to 10 or 20%. And they went there and tried to understand what are these people doing that is different, that allow them to have communities, in their communities, people who live that long. And one of such community was identified in um, um, Sardinia, Another is here in the United States, and a third one is in Japan. And they have looked at their ways of lives and, and, and discovered a number of common facts. And the interesting thing about those common facts is that they do not include the things that you might expect, like exercising. Most of these people don't exercise the way the American culture would like you to exercise. Or vitamin pills. None of them take any vitamin pills. So what is it that they're doing that is different? Well, the first thing they do is that they have a very simple diet. Their portions are small. Not a lot of meat. A lot of vegetables. All three of them. But that's not the most important aspect. The most important aspect is that the, in all three societies... Those who are old are looked up to. Their position in society is recognized. And they live within their families. So the, the construct of the family is, remain, remains intact, where the, great, the grandparents or the great-grandparents or the great-great-grandparents are still living within the family and they get to see their, ch their children, their great-children, their great-great-children, their great-great-great-children. Those two aspects seem to be very significant for them to be able to live longer, but more importantly, for them to have 
fulfilled lives. It's, a, it's worth uh, watching this, um, this, um, this uh, presentation on TED. Go on TED and just search on longevity. Uh, and uh, you, you will see it. And I thought it was very... How, how interesting that um, you... The, the premise that of, of good life are really founded upon this notion of the covenant. The natural covenant that God gave us is really wired in us. It is something that makes us happy at the natural level and then even more so at the supernatural level. How so? Well, if you have kids... I will bless you. If you don't have kids, or you don't want kids, not have or, or don't have, if you don't want to have kids, if you want to have kids, I will bless you. If you don't want to, I will curse you. <coughs> and if you don't want to have kids, guess what the corollary is? You will not want to have your elderly. Because why aren't you wanting to have kids? Because it's too much. It's too much work. It's a burden. You should have only two. Well, when your parents grow really old, they become a burden. They become like kids. If you didn't want to have kids in the first place, you're not going to want to have your elderly in the, in the second place. So what do you do? You segregate them. You put them in those places, the parking for death, as I call them where they sit there and they take them to the casino and they bust them here and there waiting for them to die. And as a result, everybody suffers. You suffer because you will not have that peace, that sense of belonging, that sense of fulfillment that comes from having a family around you. They suffer. Your kids suffer. There is a very strong correlation between having grandparents around and smart kids. Did you know that? Very strong. And it doesn't take much to figure that out. Because if the kids, especially the little ones, see the grandparents still around, guess what they're going to think? They're going to think, if they're taking care of their grandparents, if they're still around, that means I have hope. I have hope of a good life ahead of me. But if you park the grandparents away, what are you telling the kids? So in both instances, these people are getting depressed over a world that doesn't exist. Really, what they're depressed about isn't the world itself. It is that which I'm talking about. It is the sense of loneliness. It is the sense of alienation. It is the sense of not having a family around you. No wonder that in the social teaching of the Catholic Church, it has always been the case that what the Church focuses on isn't capitalism, nor communism, nor socialism, but familism. Familism. Society must support the family. And all along the book of Genesis, as we've been reading it, if you've noticed, everything we've been talking about from the very beginning till now centers around what? The family. And then what happens within the family, whether it's the family of Adam and Eve, what happened between themselves, between their relationship to God and to themselves, echo in their children. And so you have Cain and Abel, the first murder. 
And then down the line, the family splits. And we have Noah and his children. And we see what happened in his family. And how the curse of Noah echoes and reverberates throughout history. And then you have Abraham with Ishmael and Isaac. And now we're getting to Jacob with his 12 children and four wives. There is a profound teaching. There's a profound teaching in Scripture about the state of the world. And it can be summed up this way. The state of the world at large mirrors, is a mirror image of the state of the family at large. And you cannot hope to fix the world if the family is diseased. Do you understand? So, when you have in California an idea about the policies that are being made to fix the educational problems that we have, and we pour millions upon millions of dollars on our schools trying to fix the problem, when the problem, in fact, takes its source from what? Broken families. You see how When the disease enters the family, society suffers and confusion sets in. Instead of addressing the problem at its source, we would much rather address it further down. Why? Why is it better for us, in a sense, to address the problem at the school level rather than address it at the family level? Why do you think this is the case? When things are broken, what is the first purpose of the government? It's to maintain the government. No, no, before we fix anything, no, no, it's just to maintain all those working in the government. But it's, it's true across many, many companies. Many big companies here suffer from the same issue. Whenever a big company offers packages, offers retirements, offers anything, what happens within the company? You have a socialist mentality that sets in, where everyone works to do what first? Preserve the job regardless of the common good of the company. But that's a completely separate subject. I want to come back to something you hit on upon, but I want to frame it a little differently. It's easier for us to deal with schools or problems at schools because it is sociology. It is much harder to deal with problems at home because it is morality. Now you're talking about morality, what is right and what is wrong. There's no other way to frame it, and that's what we don't want to do. Why? Because we've moved away from the covenant. It is not politically correct to deal with the family because it is not politically correct to say that there is a right and there is a wrong. An absolute right and an absolute wrong. These days, unfortunately, absolute has been equated with tyranny. Anytime somebody hears absolute, they think tyrannical. Right? Why? Because our vices are so out of control that any notion of control smells of tyranny. Any notion of discipline smells of tyranny. When we tell, for instance, when we say within the Catholic Church that young men and women should not, should not have sex outside of marriage. When we say that marriage is once and for all, as long as the two are alive. Do you, do you know that the Catholic Church is the only church 
the only organized religion that affirms this? Nobody else does. Only the Catholic Church teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman in time and space. That means that you can be married to only one man or one woman at any moment in time. And as long as this person lives, you cannot go and get married to somebody else. There's no divorce. When the church says contraception is wrong, masturbation is wrong, pornography is wrong, when the church upholds and affirms that we can live a peaceful life, we can live a life where within we are at peace, the world does not understand. The world cannot comprehend this peace because the world does not live by the covenant. And that's where the line is very clearly demarcated. You either live by the covenant or you don't. And if you do, God will bless you abundantly. And if you don't, God will curse you abundantly. And keep in mind that God's curses in the beginning, initially, are medicinal. They're His call for you to come back. Come back. But if you persist and insist, He will let you go. The greatest curse. All of us, in a sense, would wish that there would be another way. All of us, in one sense, would cry with Peter when Jesus told them that his body and, and, and blood are true food. And his disciples left in John chapter 6. And he turned to the apostles and said, And what about you? Are you going to leave me? And Peter said, Where will we go? We have come to know and believe that you are the Messiah, that you have the word of, of um, the living, you have the living word of God. I'm paraphrasing here. What Peter was saying, essentially, is that if, if there is anybody else right now, and there's any other choice, now is the time to let us know. Because we'd love to have another choice. But objectively, in an absolute objective sense, absolute means objectively, apart from what I think and what you think, apart from how, how I feel and how you feel. That's what absolute means. It's a truth that is absolutely independent from your point of view and mine. It is, because it is. Objectively, there is only one Lord. Objectively, there is only one judge. Objectively, there is only one heaven. And one truth. That is the objective truth. There is nothing we can do about it. Can't change it. Either we live by it, or we don't. The reason for this very long prologue tonight is that I wanted to frame this... Um, this particular chapter with real understanding of the importance of the family and how what happens within the family affects us throughout the generation. Why? Because we're getting now more and more into the story of Jacob, how he was married to both Leah and Rachel, and what happens to him. Now, if you pay attention, you know that trouble is brewing ahead because of what is going to happen now. If you've seen what happened with Abraham... And Sarah, when they took th things into their own hands, you know that trouble is brewing. Scripture doesn't tell you so, but expects you to recognize the pattern. 
And it expects you to recognize it, not just for historical purposes, but to recognize it in your own lives, in the lives of those around you. Let's start reading chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, Leah. And she said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my maid, Bila. Go into her, that she may bear upon my knees, and even I may have children through her. So she gave him her maid, Bila, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bila conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's maid, Bila, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune, so she called his name Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for the woman will call me for the woman will call me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray, some of your son's mandrakes. Remember, Reuben is the firstborn of Leah. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Do, do you read the trouble written all over this text? Yeah? We're going to go through it and, and, and really try to understand what Scripture is telling us about our relationships. But for now, I just want you to be aware as you read this and read other parts of Scripture of what Scripture is not telling you, but is implied because of the covenant. You know, right away, there are red signals and red flags and red lights flashing all over this text. You know, we're going to crash. You know, we're in trouble. That's one part. Then I'm going to talk about God's providence in a little while later. right? And God hearkened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my hire, because I gave my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, and Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good dowry, now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. When Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. 
Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, and let me go, for you know the service which I have given you. But Laban said to him, If you will allow me to say so, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now... When shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again feed your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and, sh and, as, and, sh and such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the he-goats that were stripped and spotted, and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plain and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in from the flocks in the, in the runnels, that is the watering troughs, where, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the rods, and so the flocks brought forth stripped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the stripped and all the black in the flock of Levan, and he put his own droves apart, and did not put them with Levan's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob laid the rods in the, in the runnels before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the rods. But for the feebler of the flocks of the flock, he did not lay them there. So the feebler were Levan, and the stronger Jacob. Thus the man grew exceedingly rich, and had large flocks, maid servants, and men servants, and camels and asses. So remember that before this uh, chapter, chapter 29, verse 31 through 35, we've seen the birth of four of the sons of Leah. Reuben was born first, and then you had Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And obviously, Judah and Levi are very important throughout the history of Israel because Judah is the tribe of the kings, and Levi is the tribe of the priesthood. And now here we see this continuation. First, you notice Rachel's reaction. <clears throat> Give me a son or I shall die. Uh, notice how um, excessive her reaction is. What she's basically saying is that life without children will not be worth living. Life without children will not be worth living. At this juncture, there is a question we have to ask ourselves. Is we've seen before in different places in Scripture where God speaks the language of men. By this I mean He doesn't speak in absolute terms, in the best possible terms, in terms He would like to use, because often we could not understand Him. Rather, He adapts what He has to say to us. There are cases where in Scripture, for instance, in the letters of St. Paul, St. Paul... Uh, wrote and stated that he would excommunicate anyone who would 
be circumcised. But, that would, but then we know that circumcision today would not cause somebody to be excommunicated from the church. It was only a, a rule that he set for the, for the Christians of his time because of the temptation or the tendency they had to believe that they had to first fulfill all the laws of the temple in order to be good Christians. And so circumcision was the beginning of all those laws that a good Jew would have to obey, particularly going to the temple once a year and giving money to the temple and doing all those acts of purification. So when St. Paul said, no, if you, if you are going to do that, I'm going to excommunicate you, he was saying to them, you have a wrong theology. You have a wrong understanding of the message and the teachings of Christ. But obviously today there's no more, we don't have that temptation. Nobody associates circumcision with the temple in Jerusalem and all the laws. So therefore that law doesn't apply. Why am I bringing this? Because at this juncture, there's a very important question we have to ask. What if God here is satisfying Leah and Rachel, not because it is his absolute law that we should have children, but that the culture of the time in which they lived demanded that you had many children. The question I'm asking is, how do we know that this business of kids, having kids, is an absolute thing and not a cultural thing? Because that would be one of those objections that people would level against the teachings of the church. Back then, it was an agricultural society or agrarian society, or it was a... um, Nomadic society in which the number of children were important for the size of the tribe. Therefore, you needed to have a lot of kids. But today, we live in a different culture. Therefore, we don't have to have so many kids. How do we answer this objection? Is Rachel's cry, give me a child or I'll die, a a purely cultural statement that a woman of her time would make, but a woman of our time would not make? Or does it contain a really profound truth? How can we tell the difference? By which method can we go to distinguish between that which is purely cultural from that which is fundamental? What would you use? What is the first thing that you would use? The answer is the covenant. If something is inscribed in the covenant, it transcends both culture and time. If something is inscribed in the teachings of Christ, where he would say, Amen, Amen, I say to you, that transcends both um, culture and times. These types of statements are absolute, and culture needs to adapt to them, not the other way around. And we know from the first covenant with Adam and Eve that the blessing that God gave them as a couple, as a married couple, related to children. And one might say that the culture of Adam and Eve was vastly different in the garden than the culture of Jacob and Rachel. In fact, it was much more different. The difference is greater than the difference between their culture and ours. You understand that? So not everything can be reduced down to culture in Scripture. That is a false assumption. Likewise, not everything is absolute. So when God, for instance, created the heavens and the earth in seven days... You must understand it couched in the culture of the time. Why? Because nowhere in Scripture 
are we required to believe in seven days in order to get to heaven? You and I can't get to heaven whether God created the world in seven days or 14 billion years. The difference on our lives is negligible, if any. Yeah? So in some parts, we have to exercise the right judgment to understand how we read Scripture. Not all of it is read word by word. Some is, some isn't. So when Jesus says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Well, there's no other way to interpret it than this way. Especially when He repeats it four times. And you understand the context in which He was saying. You can't go and say, oh, well, He was speaking symbolically. There's no way you can do that. He's speaking very, very concretely. Here, when she says, give me a child or I shall die, there are some important lessons for us. The first one is that, let's look at the good things in the statement, and then we'll look at what is not right. What is good is that Rachel and Leah had the right orientation towards marriage. From the very beginning, there is no distinction for them between being married and having children. It is one and the same thing. Today, we've driven... We've driven a wedge between these two ideas of being married and having children. And we somehow think that it's okay to be married and not to have children. Remember, every time you hear me say have, I am not implying, I'm not talking about physical difficulties. I'm not talking about when, where a couple is not able to have children. I'm talking about the intention, where they don't want to have children. Notice also, Jacob is living as, as a servant. He doesn't have a um, permanent position. His future is not secured. He doesn't have the financial stability to be married to four women, let alone one. One, let alone four. I mean, he doesn't have any of this. And if you notice... He becomes exceedingly rich, not before having his kids, but after. That is the blessing, that's the proper order for blessing in God's mind. It works this way. Why? Because this is how you show your faithfulness to the covenant. The covenant in its foundation is saying, you're not going to do this alone. God never intended for us to do anything on our own. Because he's a loving father. And a loving father wants to be there where, while his sons and daughters are learning. And he's going to be there for them and help them along the way. We call this providence. God has providence for his children. He gives us what we need. I know of a little girl who's been wanting to have a rabbit. A pet rabbit. And her parents were opposed to the notion of her having a rabbit. She had two before, and both of them disappeared. And that was it. No rabbits. And what the parents would say is that, look, it's expensive. You have to buy a cage for the animal. You have to do this and then the other. There was a list of objections that they had for this little girl to have a rabbit. And um, 
About a year after she'd expressed her desire to have a rabbit, which, and she's young, she's about 11 years old, so that's a, an eternity for her. A year went by, she had a call, a phone call from a friend of hers, who told her that fr- some other friends are leaving town, and they have this nice rabbit with a cage, the rabbit is tamed, they have everything ready for her. And this little girl got her rabbit. And the, theo- the theological lesson for her was how God is, how God pays attention, pay, pays attention to the little details, even to a rabbit. How God takes care of even our small needs. She was really struck by that. When we say, I will not get married until I have a secure position, I got my money, my 401k, my house, my two cars, my horse, my cat, my dog. What we're basically saying is, the theological statement underneath that is, okay God, uh, you can sort of step aside, take a break, go on vacation. You know, Barbados might be nice. I'm going to take care of everything. That's what we're saying. And we have to be careful with this. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying somebody is unemployed, have no situation, has no future, is a bum, should go and get married. Now, I'm not saying that either. All right? But if you have a young man and a young woman who are both committed, who are energetic, who are prayerful, who are willing to trust God, but they've met and they're going to put their marriage off for another seven years until he graduates, that's madness. And it theologically is wrong. It doesn't work this way. Jacob did not wait until he was able to leave Laban before he got married. That's the first lesson. And the second that goes with it is, well, all right, we'll get married, but we'll wait till we have kids. Again, wrong approach. No. God, if we're going to get married, it means you're going to give us kids, and it means you're going to give us what it takes to take care of the kids. We'll trust you. That is the covenantal view. This is how you achieve peace. This is how God blesses you. I know quite a few Catholic families that have many children. And because many of them have grown, the parents have grown during the turbulent era, era, they're very concerned about the purity of their children, that their children will be able to maintain a pure life as they hit uh, teenagehood. And my answer back to them is, realize that God does not intend for families to have heartbreaks over their kids. That's not how God functions. If you as parents are faithful to the covenant and are offering sacrifices daily to God for reparation of sins committed in your family, particularly the fathers, if you every morning get up and tell God, Whatever suffering comes my way today, I will offer it in reparation of my sins and the sins of my family. If you're a mother and you did the same, God will heed your prayer. And God will bless you with obedient and wise children who will know how to control their urges and live a chaste and modest life. That's what God wants. Is it what you want? It isn't God who's missing at the party. Most often, it's us.
Give me a child or I shall die. Now, it was obviously excessive. Why was it excessive? She wasn't asking to get a child so that she can fulfill God's commandments. She's asking to get a child because she's in competition with her sister. Why are they competing? Because it was obvious to them that having kids is a blessing from God. Therefore, they can receive the proper position. And that something that you see in this uh, poly, uh, polygamous marriages, there can be many, many broken relationships and many, um, um, I mean, there's significant problems of positioning between the women vis-a-vis the men, right? And the children also suffer. And that's what is going on here. Marriage was never intended to be between more than one man and one woman. One man, one woman, for really obvious reasons. Love cannot be shared this way. And you see the problem. It's an example of what not to do and what to do. In one verse. It is to understand the purpose of marriage, which is a love between a man and a woman, first. That's the unitive part. And that love must bear fruit in bringing forth children. That's the creative part. Unitive and creative, and they cannot be separated. They can't be separated. Right? So that's the good part. The bad part is, in her case, she's doing it for the wrong reasons. She's doing it for status, for positioning, for power. Right? Much as we do it today for the wrong reason. I'm going to have two kids. Why do we choose two? Oh, very good question. Does it count? Does it still count as a blessing if your intentions are wrong? Yes. You see, a blessing is an objective thing. When God blesses, it's a blessing. Now, whether when you receive the blessing, it washes off of you and goes to someone else, or you benefit from it, that's the question. But it is a blessing. That's what I'm going to talk about, the providence of God. The question is, what happens to you when God blesses you? That's what sometimes we have a problem with. I'll I'll get back to this. It's a really good question. So, we have to have the right frame of mind when we're married, which is doing it for the will of God, for the glory of God, living according to the covenant. God will bless us. Leah had much more of that, much more of that attitude. In a sense, she was a victim. She never asked to be married to Jacob. Her father married her to Jacob, who doesn't love her, meaning he wasn't emotionally attracted to, or physically attracted to her. He was attracted to Rachel. And she suffered from it. And rightly so. And God blessed her by giving her children and not Rachel. Now, her anger kindles Jacob's anger. He's just as frustrated about the whole situation as she is. And he feels the stress of it. And he says, am I God? There's nothing I can do about it. But he would love to be able to do something about it. There's nothing he can do about it. It is really interesting because the... What would be the right reaction in that context? If she told him, give me a child or, I'll, or I will die, what would be the right reaction on the part of Jacob? What should he have said? I will pray for you. I will offer a sacrifice. That's the godly attitude. Going back to God. But it's really hard. It is very hard to transcend your own emotions and your own natural tendencies. He wants to satisfy her, and he can't. And as a result, he's very stressed. 
sure many of you have, have had experiences, or some, maybe not many, with your father and your mother coming home, and you, you just ask them, how was your day? And they just blow up. You know, what was wrong with them? Right? Or you might come to them and instantly ask for, I don't know, chewing gum or you know, watching a movie or whatever, and they just send you away gruffly. You know, what's wrong with them? Well, what's wrong with them is that they are under already undue stress and one more thing on their plate, something they can't handle. What's wrong with the picture? What's wrong with the picture is that they're taking on too much responsibility, which is what the devil likes to do. You want more responsibility? They'll give you more responsibility. I'll pack it up. Because he knows that's the principal mistake we make, which is to think we're responsible. Instead of thinking, we're not. God is. And a battle of a lifetime is to be able to detach yourself, work really hard, but be detached. So that instead of being stressed, you're at peace. And be always present to the need of the moment. Instead of thinking about tomorrow and what you're going to do and how you're going to solve this problem and that other problem and these other things. Leaving that aside and focusing on the need of this moment. Why? Because that person, your son or your daughter, who's asking you for this thing, that's Jesus coming to you and asking you. Would you be gruff if Jesus was there? Would you be gruff if Mary was there asking you? But this is who they are. Amen, amen, I say to you, anytime you do this to the least of my brothers... You're doing it to me. So we forget that Jesus is with us. We forget that we're in conversation with Jesus all the time. We forget. And we need to be constantly reminded by being grounded in a disciplined life of prayer. Praying in the morning, praying at noon, praying at 3 o'clock, praying in the evening, praying at night. And it doesn't have to be lots of prayers. Moments of prayers. One minute. One minute to ground us, to, grind, to bring us back to what is essential. That this relationship with God, everything we're doing through the day, is nothing more than having a conversation with Jesus. That's what we have to do, right? And this is what he didn't do. He got upset with her. All right. Now, what does Rachel do? Does she go into prayer and ask God for, to open her womb? No. She takes matters into her own hands. Here's my maidservant, um, Bila, go into her that she may bear upon my knees, and even I may have children through her. The reason of bear upon my knees is because in the ancient culture, the knees were, believe it or not, associated with um, procreative powers. So you find, for instance, in many Hittite king, uh, royal statements, I'm king so-and-so, have received my son so-and-so upon my knees. It's cultural. Is it really important? No. All that is important is to understand the meaning behind it. She's basically saying that uh, she is mine, she's a proxy for me. And when she's going to bear a child, it's going to be my child. And you know the problems that follow, right? Now, do you understand on a very principle, on the principle level, why the church is against all these notions of, you know, a womb for hire? So and so is carrying the baby of so and so. If you just look at what's going on right now, you know this is not going to work. This is what Scripture is, te- is, is teaching us. This pattern 
is faulty. It will only bring you grief. Why? Because you're fundamentally breaking the covenant. God said, I will bless you, not you're going to bless yourself. So don't attempt it. There are many things which are technically possible. There are many, many things which we can do with science. It does not mean we should do them. You know, there are some who would say, um, so for instance, when they know we're homeschooling, they say, well, well um, but why do you homeschool? And we say, well, because it's important for us to give our children the proper grounding and help them grow in the principles of the faith and have a disciplined life. And their answer would be, but, but don't you want your kids to experience everything? And my answer back to them is, no, neither do you. Now, how many of you here have ever said, I would really love to spend a day sitting in a garbage bin? Because I want to experience everything. You ever do that? Go out, open the bin, just sit in it for a day to experience it? No. So that notion of experiencing everything really hides something else behind it. Which is, but don't you want your children to grow in vice and be allowed to do as they please without any morality? That's what they're asking. And why are they asking this? Because, hey, if I were to do that to my kids... I make my life really easy as a parent. I have to worry about anything. I don't have to be behind them. I have to discipline them. I have to punish them. I don't have to really understand what their needs is and try to fulfill. I don't have to do any of this. Now, what does she do? She takes matters into her own hands. She doesn't even spend one minute in prayer. And what does Jacob do? He listens to his wife's advice in a matter that is fundamental. It's a matter of theology. It is a matter of morality. And in this case, he just listens to his wife's advice. Now, understand what is meant by when Scripture says, because you've listened to your wife. Scripture does not mean by this what we think, as in, you should never listen to your wife. Whatever she says, you should ignore. What Scripture is saying is that because you've listened only to your wife. That is, your wife speaking on the human level, not being inspired by me. That's what scripture means. So Jacob obliged. Now, here you have a very profound psychology about men and women. I was having a conversation with a, uh, with a feminist over um, the state of men, what is going on today for men in our society. And the feminists themselves are lamenting this fact, and they're recognizing it. And the fact is as follows. Today, the dropouts of men, in, in, of, of boys in school, is greater than the dropouts of, of girls. It's something that everybody recognizes. But you take it one step forward, the, um, the commitment of men in marriage is far less than the commitment of women in marriage. So there's also this phenomenon of dropout. Why is that? Simple. Men, going back to the covenant, through the brow of your, through the sweat of your brow, you, it shall yield fruit to you. In order for men to be spiritually fulfilled, they must work. That's what they must do. But in order for them to work, 
and work effectively, they need competition amongst themselves. Men, there is a fundamental flaw when a man is competing with a woman. Why? Because it is against the covenant. For women, what assures their salvation is what? Childbearing, not work. So whenever women enter the workforce and compete with men, guess what men do? They do what they're really good at. Let go. Today, there are many couples where the woman is making more money than the man. Now, you've got to understand what I'm saying to you. In, in principle, if I set aside the covenant for a second, if I set it aside, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the woman working. There's not absolutely, absolutely nothing wrong with a woman being a boss. You know, the notion that the man is the head of the family does not translate in workforce. It does not mean that the man has to always be the CEO. God does not require this. The man is the head of the family, not the company. So men who have trouble, trouble having a woman as a boss have issues. They need to deal with them. There's absolutely nothing wrong in principle for a woman to do everything a man can do. But back to what I said, the fact that we can do it doesn't mean that that's what God intends for us. The proper ordering of society is for men to work and women to take care of the house and of the children. Not because they can't do more. That's stupid. But because this is how God fundamentally told women, if you want to get to heaven, that's the way. And how do we know that? The example he gave us. If anybody was, would have been... Um, fit to be a pope, or a priest, or a cardinal, or a bishop, it's Our Lady. Nobody even get close, not even St. Peter can even get close to her. But we don't call her Mary, first pope of the church. We don't call her by a function. We call her by a state of being. Mary, mother, mother of God. And here's the tragedy. For women today... Being a CEO of a company is greater than being the mother of God. I'm going to tell you something else about this whole situation. Um, fundamentally, women are imitators of men. Women do not create societies of their own. Women do not innovate in social order, do not effect revolutions, do not change regimes. They imitate men. Because at the end, in the end, a woman derives her sense of being and a sense of existence from the way a man looks at her. It goes all the way back to Adam looking at Eve. Now it's not because I want it. It's because God made it so. He made man first and then he made woman and, he, and Adam gazed at Eve and he said, at last she's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. So many of the women today who are very successful in their jobs, a very strong personality, know what they're doing, many of them have a hard time being happy in marriage because they've effectively supplanted, supplanted their men. And so they cannot relinquish this role of leader to a man. And I know a number of families where they suffer from it. They suffer, their husbands suffer from it, and the husband is very happy. He's in a cushioned position, doesn't have to worry about it. His wife is a super performance, she's doing everything, why should he worry? Life is cool. Give me a beer. 
And this is a phenomenon that's being seen more and more. Men are just abdicating. And women find themselves lonely. Again, it isn't because we can do it that we should. When we deviate from the covenant, we cannot be happy. So, she had a son, and she called his name Dan. It's very interesting that there are many, many listings of the 12 tribes of Israel throughout Scripture. Many listings. And in a number of them, particularly in the book of Revelation, Dan, the tribe of Dan, is dropped. Not mentioned. I don't have time to go through the study in depth, but in a number of them, the tribe of Dan is not listed. It doesn't exist. And there's been this um, Jewish tradition that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. And when we get to the end of the book of Genesis, where we see the blessing, the blessing, quote-unquote, of Jacob upon each of his sons, you'll understand this better. Many of the sayings of Jacob are not blessing. If anything, they're curses. Rachel thinks that she's been vindicated. She had a son. Through that son, God's will will be done. So it appears as if it's a blessing. It's a blessing for others, but not for her. Do you understand? So often, God will bless people through someone who is destined to go to hell. Let me repeat that. God will use someone who's destined to go to hell to bless someone else. Isn't that weird? Why is that so? Well, because every knee, every knee, St. Paul tells us, everyone, every, everyone shall bend the knee in heaven and on earth and beneath the earth before the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of all. Therefore, He chooses whomever He wants to affect His will. Even those who are damned. Even those who are damned affect the will of Christ. We call this providence. So do not be quick to judge someone, either considering him to be holy or considering him to be damned. You and I don't know. Because providence flows as God's will, as the Holy Spirit wills. Jesus said, the Spirit blows whatever it wills. What does that mean? It means that the Spirit manifests himself according to his mysterious design through the lives of people. Yesterday I was in conversation with some French friends of ours who knew a priest. And that priest, French priest, had the gift of healing. He would pray for people and they would be healed. And one day he was in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament and as he was trying to pray, he had the spirit of profanity. He wanted to say things that would profane the the Blessed Sacrament. And then he stopped, and he had the wisdom to say, Lord, if this gift is not from you, I don't want it. Take it away. This gift of healing that he had for a number of years, with which he helped so many people. And after he had said that prayer, it was gone. He lost it. With the spirit of profanity. Do not presume to know what is from God. It is a very delicate and difficult matter. Best to keep one's tongue. People ask me about Medjugorje. I neither condone nor condemn. I simply say, let's wait for the church. That's all. 
Because I do not have the wisdom or the knowledge or the charism for that matter to prejudge something like that. Only the church can. I can't. So since I can't, I'm not going to sound like a fool and pretend that I know. But people will tell me, but I know people who went there were healed. Yep, I believe it. People went there and were converted. Um, yeah, I believe it. Medjugorje. People went to Medjugorje and a life changed. I believe it. Well, that, that, is not a sign that Our Lady appears there? No, it's not. Not at all. That's not how it works. So, bind your tongue. Don't say anything. Just do what the church says. Both ordinaries, both bishops in Medjugorje have asked that no priest organize pilgrimages to Medjugorje. They don't want that. Therefore, don't go as part of a pilgrimage to Medjugorje. You would be effectively calling upon yourself God's wrath. Now, they did not say, don't come here on your own. You want to go on your own? You can. The bishops did not say, do not come here and pray. You want to go and pray at Medjugorje? You could do that. But don't organize pilgrimages. They've asked for this. People then point to me about the lives of the seers. So and so, this, then the other, and this priest. That Doesn't that imply that Our Lady does not appear there? Not necessarily. In all matters, do not presume to know that which God has reserved for His church. You had a dream, a beautiful dream about somebody who passed away. Your mother, your uncle, your aunt, your whomever. The really interesting thing is I've never met anyone in the past 10 or 12 years I've been doing this Bible study. I've had a lot of people come to me and talk to me about their dreams. Not one of them told me that in their dreams they saw their mother-in-law. I don't know what God has against mother-in-laws that they don't appear in anybody's dream. Do not be quick to, to judge. Oh, I saw my mother. She's in heaven. Maybe. Let's pray. But do not presume. Don't have the sin of presumption that you know that which the church has not declared in those matters. Be very careful. So then, I'm not going to go through the whole list of competition between Rachel and Leah. I think you got the gist of the matter, right? They're competing between the two of them and using their maidservants to further their empire. And then we get to this business of Mandrake. This is an interesting little episode. Mandrake was associated, had throughout antiquity and even today, has, it has some uh, emetic and uh, other medicinal uh, properties. And it was associated with fertility. So just as today people take you know, a whole bunch of vitamins willy-nilly, even though there is no test that was done, no blind, double-blind test to say this is actually a product that really works, but because so-and-so said so, they just take it, well, guess what? They were doing that already back then. And here, there is this belief that if you use mandrake in one way or the other, you can be pregnant. It's superstitious. And that's what Rachel wants the mandrake for. And so she asks Leah for it. Reuben got her mandrake. So now the kids are involved in the competition. Why did Reuben got mandrake to her mom? Because he needed them? No. He brought it to her. And, and Rachel sees them and says, could you please give me some of yours? So, well, no. You took away my husband. What is the implication? Most of the time, Jacob is with Rachel, not with Leah. You really have to feel for her. And, well, there's a barter. Give me some mandrake for one night. 
Well, what do you call this? This is degradation of the life within the family. And you know, therefore, that this is going to percolate all the way through among the twelve brothers. This is already foreshadowing what? What is going to happen down the road? What are the twelve sons, the eleven sons are going to do? Yeah, throw Joseph, wanting to kill one of them, their own, right? Where, where is it coming from? Right here. I shall visit, I shall visit the sins of the parents on their children. It starts right here. Now, observe how God acts, how scripture reacts to this. The opposite happens. Rachel gets the mandrake, Leah does not get the mandrake, and Leah is pregnant twice in succession. Not Rachel. It's an utter condemnation of any of that sort of nonsense. Scripture is fundamentally rational. It appeals to reason. So please, when you go back home, take the whole box of 30 to 40 vitamin things and skin things and, and any of those products you have, and look at each one of them. And when they say there is no FDA-approved statement on these things, understand there has not been a double-blind test to determine the veracity of the statement made with those things. There is no basis for it. It's like the loto. That's what you're doing. And it behooves you, before you, you put that stuff in your body, to do a little bit more research on it. Spend some time to educate yourself on the necessity of those things and their usefulness. So now we go through the whole list of children. By the way, Leah had more boys, and, uh, and, and she had seven, uh, six boys and one girl, more than all three women put together. Right? So God listens to the voice of the afflicted. Even when she's wrong, but he listens to the voice of the afflicted. Now, when Rachel had born jo- Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Notice? He waited until Rachel bore him a son, and then he said, send me away. Why? Yeah. Deep down, he knows what is the true relationship. It's just with this one, one, one woman. This is his, his, really, his true son, right here. Joseph. And now Laban is going to haggle with him. He doesn't want to send him away. Why? Because ever since Jacob has been with him, Laban has been blessed. Laban is blessed by Jacob, even though Jacob is behaving the way he is. Even though Jacob ends up with four women, even though Jacob is essentially brewing trouble, still the blessing flows. Why? Why is that? How can we explain this? More specifically today, how can we explain that this person over here commits one moral sin in their entire life. One moral sin. One. And they go to hell. This other person commits a whole bunch of them. A whole bunch. And right before they die, they have a good confession. They receive the last sacraments. They pray the chapter of divine mercy. They say the rosary. They die. And they're saved. How come? Where's the justice in that? But what, what in the covenant, specifically? Yeah, exactly. God's problem with what? More, more, in a very practical sense. Ah, that's why. Because somebody prayed for this guy. Somebody loved him enough to pray for him. Was that guy? Nobody prayed for him. Mm-hmm. Our Lady told uh, Jacinta, Lucia, and um, help me out. Hmm? No, Jacinta, Lucia, and the boy. Francesco, that so many souls go to hell because there is no one praying for them. 
Now, think about that for a second. Why is it there's no one praying for them? Why is it there is no one praying for them? Let's take it one step before they die. Ah, back to the same problem. The family is broken. If you have a loving family who's grown in the covenant of God, what is going to happen when you die? What is your family going to do for you? Pray for you. And if they're smart and wise, what will they do after you're dead? They'll keep praying for you and not assume you're in heaven. What a punishment these days when you go to funerals and most people are canonized on the spot. They're in heaven. What if somebody's in heaven, what does that mean for us? We wash our hands. Right? You're not going to pray for somebody in heaven, are you? Instead, what do you do? You want them to pray for you. I mean, talk about love. It is said that the lowest levels of purgatory, the pain, the suffering in the lowest level of purgatory, is very similar to that of hell. With the only difference being that the damned are cursing God for their suffering, whereas those in purgatory are blessing God. That's the only difference. But the level of pain and suffering is the same. And remember that those who are in purgatory are there on account of what? Venial sins and, and punishment due to sin. So when you and I commit sins, we go to confession, we're forgiven. That means we are restored in the friendship of God. And if we were to die, we go to heaven. But we still have to atone to God's justice by paying what is due. Just as if you were to break a window, you go say, I'm sorry I broke your window. You just, you just don't go away. What do you say? I'll pay for it. And if it's an expensive window that costs, let's say, $10,000, a big one, it might take you a couple of years to pay for it. It's the same thing. But if somebody's offering a mass on your behalf, what does that mean when somebody offers a mass on behalf of somebody who died? But what does that really mean? Think about it. What, what does that mean? When you put that, that intention on the altar, what does that mean? Who's making the offering now? No, 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 no. no, no. Jesus. Jesus is taking that offering, presenting it to whom? To His Father. Yeah. That's what it means. Pretty powerful. The communion, in the, in, in the creed we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. What comes after? The communion of saints. Key on these words. The communion of saints. There is much consolation in the communion of saints. If in your family, God willing, you have a great, great, great grandma who was a saint, and she's seeing you right now, she can go to Jesus and say, I want this one. I want him here with me. Yeah, and you might make it up there because she's there. Through her intercession. Always think this way. Don't ever think that, oh, I'm making it happen because of me. You're in trouble if you think this way. Always think, hmm, I'm still here in the church because somebody's really praying hard. I don't know who that person is, but I sure I'm going to be saying thank you the day I meet him or her or them. There may be a bunch of them. You might spend the first five years in heaven just saying thank you for all the people who prayed for you. The communion of saints is such a consolation for us to know we are not alone. If you come from a long tradition, that's why 
The tradition in your church, in your family is so important. If you come from a long tradition of Christians, of people who suffered and maintained the faith in the face of adversity, you know you have, you have the, 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 you know, the fifth and the sixth and the seventh army in heaven praying for you. I mean, you have power. You can't even begin to understand because of all these people praying for you. So, make it a habit to befriend new saints. There are so many of them. Get to befriend as many as you can. Become their friends because they intercede for you. And these are powerful people interceding for you. We need all the help we can get. So be it as it may, he therefore decides, I'm going to go home. And then there's this bartering between Laban and he. Well, what, you know, why should you go? I'll pay you whatever you want. And he says, all right, don't pay me anything. I'll take only the speckled and the black and, the, and um, essentially all the animals that are really rare in your, in your, uh, in your herd. The speckled and um, spotted tend to be very rare. So Laban thinks, hey, it's a great deal. He takes away all the speckled and the spotted, move them away, and thinks, I'm done. Right? Three days' journey away, there is, no re- there is no interaction between the rest of the herd and those ones. Therefore, he's going to stay here forever. But Jacob finds a way, and there is a scientific basis for it. I'm not going to go into the details of this right now. I don't have time. But there is actually a scientific basis why what he talks about can work to multiply his herd. And he is now very, very rich indeed. He's rich, yes. And from the outside looking in, you'd say, wow, this man is really blessed. He's got 12 sons, and he has a herd. Any time you hear camels, you know he's very rich, right? That was the Cadillac at the time, the camel. Because there weren't much camels at the time. If you notice, in Egypt... And all the hieroglyphs and all the drawings, there are no camels in those drawings. The camel was not used as means of transportation back then. It came, it's much later. So anyone who had a camel is like somebody having a, a hippo today in his backyard. You have to be pretty rich to have a hippo and have the backyard for it. <clears throat> well, that's what the camel represents here. If you have camels, you're mighty rich. So he is now prosperous. So if you look at it from the Old Covenant point of view, the natural Old Covenant, he's rich, he's got sons. Everything looks good. If you look at it from the New Covenant point of view, interior holiness, you know, there is trouble. And that's how we have to look at the lives of people. Don't assume because somebody has a beamer or is going on a cruise or the hair, their hair look the right way or their skin look the right way that everything is a-okay. You don't know. Hold your peace. Don't assume that because you're having troubles, you're having difficulties, you may have a problem finding a job, you may have a problem keeping your job, you may have a problem with your boss, you may have a problem with your kids, that the, the, green is, the grass is green on the other side of the fence in the lives of others. God doesn't work this way. God doesn't, do not measure your peace by how much or how little trouble you have. Do not measure your peace by how much or how little trouble you have. That's how the world measures. Measure your peace by 
your love for God and the love of your family towards one another. Measure your peace by looking at your family and asking yourself this question. Is all my family in the church? Do they have the faith? Are they praying? Are my kids growing in the prayer? Even though most of the time they look like pagans. But are they? Kids will bicker and will talk back and sometimes show you disrespect. This is normal. There's a normal edge to it. But deep down, is the faith important to them? Is modesty important to them? Is their person important to them? If they're 16, 17, or 18, they're already talking about dating and having a girlfriend and messing up their lives and lives of somebody else and complicating things. Or do they have the wisdom to say, I don't even know who I am yet. I have issues of my own. I haven't grown yet to even be able to really live by myself, let alone having somebody else in my life. I'm talking to, I was talking to a girl of 14 years old who told me, if I were to have a boyfriend right now, I pity him. Probably won't last more than two weeks. I don't know who I am. How, can I be, how, how do you think I'm going to be able to have a relationship with somebody else? She's 14. That's wisdom. This is not supposed to be unconventional. This is not supposed to be exceptional. This is not supposed to be extraordinary. This is supposed to be the norm. Because God grants wisdom to families who live according to His covenant. Take hope. Providence is there. What you must do is live according to the covenant. Be generous with God. For He is much generous with you. And you and I cannot outdo Him in generosity. We can't. Be generous with God in your time, in your prayer, in your commitment to the covenant, in being courageous, in bearing suffering with meekness, with peace. And then He will take your life and turn it into a miracle. And you will be amazed. That's where joy is. That's the season. That's Christmas. The reason why the world has thrown away Christmas is because we, the Christians, have thrown away Christmas. We want to maintain Christmas outwardly. But inwardly, we don't want to live according to Christmas. That is according to the covenant. And God will not put up with it. You want Christmas back? Get it back first in your family. People fight with laws and rules and this and that and the other, thinking if we do all this, everything will be fine. It won't. We can do all these things and have a world that functions exactly according to the laws of the Catholic Church and everybody's going to hell. Because it isn't about law in the end, at the end of the day. It's about love. The love of God and His covenant. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.